when you have this experience where you get to see maybe a deeper picture of who you are while experiencing a deep and loving gaze from a Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. It just does something to you. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Betwixt Podcast. I'm Deb Gregory. Today, our topic is imaginative prayer. How did you feel when I said that? Did it raise your eyebrows? Did you feel uncomfortable with the idea of using your imagination with prayer? Well, if you did, you're not the only one. I'll confess that this is a practice that I've really had to do some warming up to, and this discomfort isn't anything new to our time. Throughout Christian history, the imagination has been held with both awe and suspicion. While some Christian ascetics could spend hours in prayer brimming with ecstatic visions, others view the imagination with great skepticism, preferring a rational and doctrine-drenched knowledge of God. But much of this tension had to do with the ambiguity of the word imagination. And if you've been around the podcast for a while, you know that whenever I hear the word ambiguity, my ears perk up because chances are something betwixing is happening in that space. Ambiguity is often marked by both danger and opportunity for transformation. Anthropologist Victor Turner understood imagination as essential to new growth. He described it as a liminal moment when the past is momentarily negated, suspended, or abrogated, and the future has not yet begun. There is an instant of pure potentiality when everything trembles in the balance. Okay, so what do we mean by imagination? Do we mean the untamed fantasies that feed the lusts and desires of our ego? Or do we mean the inner vision that quickens our hearts and minds to reach for something beyond the image, to behold ideals of goodness and truth beyond ourselves? Psychologists who study imagination say that it's actually quite complex. But at the most basic level, imagination is the reordering of memories in such a way as to open up new possibilities. Child psychiatrist Dan Siegel describes imagination as a wide open plane of awareness. He says, imagination awakens from the spacious plane of possibility, the source of both being aware and of new possibilities. It's the formless place that's full of potential forms. It's both empty and full at the same time. And there are many different types of imagination and different ways the brain engages imagination, especially during the stages of childhood development. Researchers demonstrate that imagination has something of a double edge. And this is why people can have such vastly different opinions about imagination. Prominent developmental psychologist Lev Vygotsky describes the tension like this. 
Imagination may play a dual role in human behavior. It can lead a person toward or away from reality. He affirms that we depend on imagination for maturity, and it leads us into new possibilities. Yet he warned, To satisfy oneself in imagination is extremely easy. To retreat into dreaminess, escape into an imagined world, often distracts the focus and efforts of the adolescent from the real world. Because imagination has this double edge, the question becomes, how do we set about mastering it? And this too was the concern and experience of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Ignatius lived in Spain during the early 1500s. His youth was marked by sensual pleasures, gambling, women, fighting. But in 1521, while leading the charge in the Battle of Pamplona, a cannonball shattered his leg during combat. Ignatius was taken to a monastery where he spent long months confined to bed with nothing but his imagination to bide his time. The only books in the monastery were about the life of Christ and the life of the saints. Ignatius noticed that when he spent long hours fantasizing about chivalry and romance, he felt empty and dry and dissatisfied. But when he pondered the sacrifices of the saints and the biblical stories, he was filled with the consolation of an inner joy and peace. Over time, Ignatius discerned that the spiritual life is never static. It's always moving either toward or away from God. And like Lev Vygotsky, he noticed this double edge of imagination. And so he began to explore how one sets about mastering it. Ignatius developed imaginative exercises to discipline his mind. The goal was not to fantasize about God, but rather for the imagination to enter that wide open plane of awareness where mental images, senses, memories, and emotions might illuminate higher truths and draw us closer to God. So with this background, Let's turn now to our conversation with my guest about how imaginative prayer can be used as a tool for the spiritual formation of children. It's one thing to know about God and the Bible, something that many churches and parents do well, but another thing to guide our children into the wide open plains of awareness where they can cultivate meaning, identity, and potentiality. As Henry Ward Beecher once said, the soul without imagination is what an observatory would be without a telescope. My guest is Jared Boyd. Jared is a pastor and sits on the board of directors for Vineyard USA. He's also a spiritual director, teacher, and the founder of the Order of Sustainable Faith, a missional monastic order for the 21st century. He's the author of Invitations and Commitments, A Rule of Life, and his latest book, Imaginative Prayer. Thanks, Jared, for sharing this conversation with me. Tell me about the book, Imaginative Prayer. So Imaginative Prayer, released uh, July of 2017 with InterVarsity Press. If I think about like where was the book birthed from, I actually remember a, a meeting that I had with parents in our church and trying to encourage them towards really recognizing that they're the most important part of their kid's spiritual journey and that... Mm. We're going to do the best we can to create environments in our church for your kids to, to have their spiritual life nurtured. But really, we can't touch what happens at home. Mm. And I remember 
you know, maybe sharing some stories about some of the things that I was trying to implement in, in our own house. Somebody said, yeah, Jared, you can do that because you're a pastor. Wow. But the rest of us have these kind of hustle bustle lives. My kind of immediate reaction was, wait a second, like, I don't do this because I'm a pastor. In fact, I had at the time two other jobs. So it's not like I was a full-time pastor and I had all this extra time. And You it, had some hustle and bustle. <laughs> I had some hustle. I still do. But I think a lot of parents think they don't have the time to really kind of take ownership and take responsibility for the nurturing of, of their kids' spiritual life. I mean, we put all kinds of energy into getting them to sporting events. We don't seem to have any trouble like helping with science fair and homework. But when it comes to spiritually forming our children, many of us are just kind of like, I'm not quite sure what to do. From a pastoral perspective, I just found myself time and time again bumping up against this kind of assumption that parents feel like they don't have what it takes. Mm. And so the book was really through that lens, trying to help parents gain the confidence and the skills so it's not just about a lack of time, though. It's so intimidating. I think it is intimidating. And I talk a little bit about this in a book. I got to the point where, you know, I had been receiving spiritual direction for close to a decade. I had been trained to give spiritual direction and was doing quite a bit of that. But when it came to the life of my own kids, I just felt really ill-equipped mm -hmm. to try to nurture them towards some of the more contemplative things that had brought so much life to my own walk with Jesus. I just found myself reverting back to, you know, Bible memorization or, yeah. you know, getting the stories right or helping my kids kind of get their mind around doctrine and... No flannel graphs. No flannel graphs. No, <laughs> not... not. Uh, I mean, when I grew up, yeah, but <laughs> I just felt kind of ill-equipped. And so it just helped me maybe have a little empathy for parents that were feeling pretty ill-equipped to what I, as a pastor, was really encouraging them to do. I know that we have felt that as parents. I feel like you have opened a window for us because, you know, we got your book, and I think our daughters are maybe a little too young specifically for your book. Mm -hmm. But I read through, and I was like, oh, I at least get the idea and the concept here. And so using that to open the window to explore imagination with them, entering into the Bible stories, I think for me, it was shocking to realize that they were already doing that, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like they already enter into the stories with their imagination. And somehow I just felt like I have really lost that in becoming an adult. So it's been really fun just to listen to what they're saying. Okay, so that's how they're perceiving these verses. I wouldn't have known that unless we did this together. I mean, it's really encouraging for me to hear you say that this was kind of like a window opener because I think that's the, the goal. Yeah. The goal is not to have kids experts at imaginative prayer. Um, it's This is just one way, I hope, to really help foster the connection mm. between parents and children around the life and the teachings of Jesus. And I don't know that as much connection happens when we're more kind of cerebral and maybe doctrinally driven. Mm -hmm. But I, my hope is that this kind of imaginative approach, which I think is well supported in scripture, I think it creates this deeper connection because it's drawing from different parts of our brain and there's kind of more emotional space that's being created, which creates memories and all that kind of Meaning. Meaning. Right? That's right. Yeah. That's where we create meaning. That's right. When our emotions are engaged and articulated, uh, we create meaning and memories. 
this book isn't just for parents. It seems like it's also something that would be useful for churches. How could you envision churches, groups who are working with children to be able to use your book best? Yeah, you know, there's a number of churches who are making use of this as curriculum. The reports I'm getting and is that they're just seeing really cool things happen um, in their kids and the way that parents and kids are engaging is shifting quite a bit. My hope is that this book helps churches connect with parents and to partner with parents. And so I've written a nine-month leader's guide that basically turns the contents of the book into a nine-month curriculum. And the idea is that maybe a fourth to sixth grade classroom that's got 20 kids is that each kid would, would take home a book that would be for the parents. But then the curriculum guide shows a teacher how to lead that imaginative prayer on a Sunday morning. And then the parents at home then have the book in hand with follow-up questions. There's a section in each lesson that encourages the parent to think about their own formational journey and to experience alongside of the child. So for example, if, if this week's material is on God's love for you, the first step for a parent will be to reflect on their own experience of God's love. I feel really strongly that it's it's really hard for us to lead others where we ourselves haven't gone. Mm. And so my hope is that the church will be there to support the parent in deepening their own kind of life with God and their own experience of God. And then out of that deeper place, the parent will then feel equipped and have the tools to take their, their child along on this journey together. One thing that struck me about your book was sometimes when people talk about imaginative prayer, they kind of push it over into the realm of mysticism. But it seemed like you were trying to connect it also to the catechism, mm -hmm. to connecting the head and the heart a little bit. Can you talk about that process for you? Yeah, it is kind of formed around this kind of catechesis model and the idea is to sow seeds of both contemplative formation, but also great theology. And so um, I think actually one of the critiques of the book has been that it's a little too theological. So <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe maybe that's a fair critique, though I think my immediate response is, then what what is it that we're setting out to do? If we're not really setting out to give our kids theological framework in order to kind of wrestle with scripture, then I don't know what it is that we're doing. It is a theological framework, and it is trying to get our kids on board with the arc of scripture, but in a what I hope is a playful and contemplative journey. Yeah. Uh, you've mentioned spiritual direction a couple times, Yeah, but I don't know that a lot of listeners are going to know what spiritual direction is. Um, or even spiritual formation. Can you talk about those two things? Yeah, so let me start with spiritual formation. I tend to think spiritual formation has two sides to it. Okay. It has our own conception of ourself and then our view of God. And so we can have a proper view of God and a poor view of ourself, and that can disrupt our formation. Or vice versa, we can actually have a really accurate view of who we are, but a, an inaccurate view of God and that too can disrupt our formation towards the way of Jesus. So I tend to think of formation as addressing both our view of God and our view of self, our self-awareness. What are our patterns of dysfunction? Where are we operating out of our own brokenness or unwoundedness? Maybe how do we project those things onto God? And now we've got a little bit of a hot mess. And so formation 
is the process of kind of reorienting our view of God and our view of self. Mm-hmm. And spiritual direction is having somebody journey with you, alongside of you, paying attention to that process. Yeah. A spiritual director is just there to kind of help you peel back the layers and to pay closer attention while also being attentive to the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Formation and direction, I think, kind of go hand in hand. And how have you felt imaginative prayer as being a useful tool in that process? Oh, man. I, I first encountered imaginative prayer through the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. At the core of Ignatian spirituality is imaginative prayer. So I didn't invent imaginative prayer, and neither did St. Ignatius of Loyola. Ignatius developed the spiritual exercises to lead folks through as they were becoming Jesuits. So here's a program of formation, discipleship, that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so I went through the spiritual exercises alongside of a director about four years ago or so, and it was in that experience that I just had just such a deep encounter with Jesus. Imagining myself alongside of Jesus as one of his disciples, or the blind beggar on the side of the road, and and kind of putting myself in the story in a way that I was experiencing what I would believe with the presence of the Holy Spirit, a a one-on-one encounter with, with Jesus. So it really shaped my own deepening of how I viewed God. And then the other thing that the exercises do so well is it just gently allows you to confront your your sin and brokenness. And when you have this experience where you get to see maybe a deeper picture of who you are while experiencing a deep and loving gaze from a Heavenly Father, Mm -hmm. it just does something to you. And so that, for me, was a huge transition in my life with God, and it really obviously informed what my book became. I started writing kind of wondering, how do I contextualize this experience of both spiritual direction and imaginative, contemplative prayer for the little people in my life? I just kept writing, and three years later, a book began to come together. Did you work through all these exercises with your daughters? I did. Predominantly my oldest daughter. She was, I think, in the fourth or fifth grade during much of the writing of this. And we were piloting this material on a Sunday morning in our fourth to sixth grade classroom. And then I would try new things out kind of on my kids. I think it was really the my oldest daughter that got to experience most of that, both at home and in the classroom environment. What did you learn from that process of walking through this with with children? I was really surprised at how easy it was for a group of fourth and fifth grade kids to get quiet. That was the biggest surprise. And as I talk to people across the country, I think that is actually the biggest surprise when they use this in a classroom environment. I think we just assume that because kids are rowdy and they're often loud, that they can't do quiet in silence. Or that there are some kids that are naturally bent towards quiet and other kids that are bent towards noisy, which I think is probably true too. But I was so shocked at, with a little bit of guidance, they were really enjoying like sitting in quiet for 10 minutes while the teacher led this imaginative exercise. I think the cool thing is it made recruiting for teaching that classroom really easy (laughs) because it was a fun environment. It wasn't, it didn't feel stressful. When you kind of say, this is the program, this is what we're doing, and it includes this kind of quiet, 
more contemplative way, I have found that kids really follow suit and it introduces them to something that they need, but they don't realize they need. How does the book work out? I think when I looked through it, it starts with awareness of God's love. Mm -hmm. And some of these, like returning back to the idea of the catechism, of some of these foundational principles. So can you just like share what some of the principles that they're learning through these exercises are? The first lesson is that the most important part of the story is that God loves so many things. And then in the second lesson, it has like a deeper focus in that of all of the things that God loves, the most important thing to me is that he loves me. And so really the first six weeks are about God's love. And the second six weeks are about what happens when we make mistakes or what happens when things are going wrong or what happens when we're sick. And so right from the get-go, I'm trying to lay a framework for kids to be able to wrestle through even the feelings of unworthiness or uh, the feelings of shame that may arise when you make a mistake or what to do when you or someone else gets sick. Like, how do you think about that in relation to your your life with God and your conception of the kind of God that we have? There's not a lot out there that kind of guides children through this. Is there? I I don't know of a ton that is trying to help kids kind of form a theological framework for this kind of thing. Yeah. You know, at their own level. I think most of our kids' ministry material, most of the curriculum is really virtue-based. And it's talking about the attributes that we want to gain. Um, And I, I think the virtues are really important. But I think they come from a deeper lived experience rather than the experience of trying to gain them. Right. Um, so I do think actually at the end of the day, what a more contemplative kind of journey for our kids could get us. I do think it'll actually get us more loving and more patient and more kind and more gentle children who will then become adults. But I think that the way I'm trying to get us there is really different than what a lot of kind of virtue-based curriculum kind of purports. It seems to me that at least those that I talk with on more deeper soul levels, that the real issues that they're grappling with as adults are kind of linked back to childhood issues of shame, Mm -hmm. the pain, the grief. That's right. So that seems like a really powerful and kind of a refreshing approach. I think the framework of helping to equip parents to journey spiritually with their kids, I think the real benefit is that connection that happens. Our kids are going to make meaning out of their world, whether we're engaged or not. Mm -hmm. And so my hope is that we're becoming conversation partners with our children about these really deep and significant things so that we can help shape some of the meaning that they're making, both about their own life and about what God has to say about our role here on earth, our role as as his children, and our role in co-laboring with Jesus for the building of the kingdom. So when you start talking about the contemplative stream and imaginative prayer within evangelical circles, what's the pushback that you you encounter? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, a lot. Uh, so uh, and one of the main questions is, what if our kids imagine things that are contrary to the teaching of Scripture? And I think my response to that is, if we are journeying alongside of them, then everything becomes a dialogue. 
you know, occasionally I'll ask one of my kids, hey, are you, are you praying about anything these days? Or is God speaking to you about anything right now? One of my daughters said, no, not really. I'm not really praying these days. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Uh, say, tell me more about that. And she said, well, it doesn't really feel like a dialogue. It just feels like I'm talking to nothing. And me, four or five years ago, would have had this kind of rush of anxiety. But um, the reality is, is I've had that experience and I continue to have that experience where sometimes it does feel like God is not there, that God is absent or distant. So I decided just to kind of engage her a little bit and ask some more questions. And we ended up spending a little time right there sitting on our stairs. And I said, why don't, why don't we just pray? And I'll just ask that God would, would come and speak to you right now. You know, here I am thinking I'm like, you know, being super dad in this very particular moment. And we go into a space of prayer and I just say, you know, just ask God if he has anything to say to you. And within a couple of seconds, she bursts into tears. And her reply back was, he said no. Now, like a former version of myself would want to rush in and to say, well, that's not how God is like, you know? But the reality is, is that was her experience. But if I'm there present with her, able to help her articulate the way she's feeling, the way she's experiencing God, she's getting in some good reps for what we know as just our spiritual life, which has its ups and downs, or what Ignatius would call consolation and desolation. So there may be times that in imagination, our kids have experiences we wish they wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. But then the secondary question is, what if they arrive at quote unquote wrong conclusions about scripture or about God? And I've never encountered that. And I think that the fear behind this really brings out the fact that we struggle to be Trinitarian Christians. I think the biggest challenge facing kind of the spiritual formation kind of world within the circle of evangelicalism is the question of, are we really going to entrust our lives to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit? I think one of the things that I am pretty keen to point out to people who are questioning kind of my approach here in imaginative prayer is that each lesson is either drawn directly from scripture mm. or is rooted in a historic theological framework. And I think all of our you know, imaginative places should be tested in community through the lens of Scripture. Mm. But the interesting thing that I think is so underplayed in our reading of Scripture is how often Jesus invites us to imagine. Yeah. And he may not use the word imagine, but every time he says the kingdom of God is like, what he's doing is he's inviting us to imagine. It's like, it's like a farmer that goes to bed after planting seed, and while he sleeps it grows. Um, that's an imaginative space. That is a image-based teaching. Or another one I, I love to imagine myself is Jesus standing on the, on the temple steps at the last day of the festival, and he says, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. And he is kind of drawing on images of this river from Ezekiel that is billowing out of the temple and continues to kind of flood the entire valley and it brings such life and fruit and trees and and he is reorienting that picture around himself and he says i am the river of life you can come to me and you can drink and over and over and over again we find jesus describing the kingdom in these imaginative image-based ways and yet for some reason we seem hindered in approaching the story like that mm -hmm. um, so I'm just curious how 
this way of experiencing scripture and experiencing prayer can maybe shift some of where we find ourselves in North American Christianity. Yeah, I think it's really important in that that journey of formation and transformation, really. I think it's key. Without Mm. imagination, we cannot make a new beginning. Yeah, it reminds me of something that Walter Brueggemann said, that the doctrinal tradition of the church has had this way of kind of closing our experience of God, like ever shrinking our experience of God into these particular kind of doctrinal statements. Whereas the poetic tradition of Scripture, the prophets, has a way of opening up our imagination to what God could be in terms of our experience of Him. I think what he's trying to say is that we have kind of relegated the poets and the imaginative spaces in a way that has left us deficient of a proper view of God. So we think that the proper view of God comes with right thinking and right doctrine, but it turns out that we actually can't get the full view of God without this imaginative and more artistic and poetic way of thinking. Yeah, I think that's true. It's very difficult for us, at least for me, to really engage that space. I mean, it's a vulnerable space. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's taboo to talk about. It's not proper for Western didacticism, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's not rational. I have a really hard time Mm -hmm. with the imagination in terms of my spiritual life. Yeah, you know, I um, this has surprised people when I've talked about it, but this has not been an easy journey for me. Imagination requires a degree of playfulness, mm. um, and I'm just not naturally a playful person. I'm just not. Like when everybody else was at the Ohio State football game in college, like I was studying philosophy in the library. I just, very kind of logical, rational side to me, which is why this whole imaginative and contemplative thing came as such a surprise to me. But I think what I'm finding is that the history of the contemplative stream is really what we're, we're harvesting from here. I feel like when we go to drink as evangelicals from these contemplative streams, it just feels like mm. quite a mouthful. <laughs> um, how do we drink from them? Maybe slowly. Um, we should drink slowly. My first encouragement to folks is to find a spiritual director. My life has been radically transformed by having a few people in my life over the past 10 or 12 years to help me pay attention to my life with God. I think most people, if you ask them, who do you have in your life that helps you pay attention to what you're praying about and what God is speaking to you? Most people would say, I don't have anyone that does that. Mm -hmm. And so I think finding a, a spiritual director is a really great first step. I tend to encourage people, if they're kind of wanting to take their first few sips of this kind of contemplative experience, David Benner's books, um, I think, are a really great entry point. The Gift of Being Yourself, I think, is a wonderful introduction to this kind of contemplative experience. Good. Well, thank you. Absolutely. So I'll be honest, imaginative prayer is something that I've personally wrestled with. Yet as a mother, I found it to be an incredible practice to use with my children. They kind of do it anyway. But it provides a language to talk with my daughters about their fears, their longings, their experience with God in a way that I would not have been able to engage and to help shape otherwise.
so I am thankful for the way Jared has challenged my thinking about prayer and parenting. And I hope that this episode has stirred up some questions and challenges for you to engage with as well. And if you're interested in Jared's book, Imaginative Prayer, I'll put a link to his page in the show notes and on the betwixtpodcast.com website. So now I've asked Jared to walk us through an abridged exercise of his book, which we'll play at the very end of this episode. You're welcome to pause and to find a comfortable place so that you can participate as you like. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Betwixt Podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missyoualliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcasts, and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvoli.com or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time. Each imaginative prayer in that kind of catechism form has a question and an answer. And so the question for this imaginative prayer is, how do we receive the promises of God? And the answer is, we receive the promises of God when we choose to follow Jesus. Imagine with me that you're sitting at a table in front of a giant wooden door. This door is like the giant doors on the front of castles. It's an old door. It's beautiful and it's big. You're sitting at a table that is set for a feast, though you're the only person at the table right now, and you're waiting for the others to arrive. Suddenly, there's a knock at the door. You turn the handle and hear the door creak a bit as it opens. It opens slowly. You can see someone standing in front of you, and once the door opens all the way, you can see that it is Jesus. And he's smiling. Imagine that you're looking up at his face. He's much taller than you, of course, but then he crouches down so that his face is right in front of yours. And then he gently says to you, hey there, can I come in? Invite Jesus into the room right now. 
me know when you can picture him with you. Jesus invites you to sit in a chair in the corner of the room. There's a pitcher of water and a basin sitting next to the chair. You watch as Jesus takes off his robe and picks up a towel. He kneels in front of you and it looks like he is about to wash your feet. Imagine looking down at your feet. You realize that you don't have any shoes on. You've played all day in the dirt and ran around without shoes. If there was a contest for who had the dirtiest feet, you would definitely win. Then Jesus reaches down and takes your feet into his hands. He holds your feet over the bowl and pours water over your feet. You're reminded of the story when he washed the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. What does it feel like to let Jesus wash your feet? He takes soap and gets those feet really clean. And then he dries them off and invites you to join him at the table. Jesus sits right next to you at the table. This seems like quite the feast. What does it feel like to be at a table all alone with Jesus? Imagine now that Jesus begins pouring juice in some of the glasses around the table. Jesus takes some bread from the table and breaks it into smaller pieces. You watch him as he places a small piece of bread on each plate on the table. You're reminded of the Last Supper when Jesus broke the bread and gave thanks for the wine. You remember that the bread was to remind you of his body and that the cup with wine was to remind you of his blood. This feels like a really special moment. Jesus hands you a plain white envelope. On the front of the envelope are written two words. It says, an invitation. Imagine holding the envelope in your hands and wondering what Jesus could be inviting you to. Go ahead and open it, he says. Jesus looks on with a smile. You're excited. It kind of feels like your birthday. You open the envelope and see a card inside. And you open the card and you see two words. It simply says, follow me. 
you look at Jesus, and then there's a moment of silence. Imagine as Jesus reaches out and takes your hand, and then he says, I'd like for you to follow me. I'd like to show you what a good life looks like. I'd like to invite you into helping me bring good news to the whole world. What does this invitation feel like for you? You look down at the card again. It says, follow me. You're reminded of when Jesus said these words to Peter one morning when he was fishing. He said these words to Matthew, the tax collector. And he said the same words to that little man, Zacchaeus, who climbed up into a tree to get a better view of Jesus. Do you have faith in me? Jesus asked. Do you believe that I am the king? Do you trust that I will take care of you? Do you know that I love you? Do you believe that I speak the words of God? Do you believe that I died and rose again? What do you say to all of this? Do you trust Jesus? Do you want to follow him? You look at Jesus again, and you look at the feast before you. You look again at the invitation from Jesus. Follow me, it reads. Follow me, says Jesus. God made a new promise, and it comes to us through Jesus. The good news of God comes to us through the words of Jesus. The good news of God comes to us through the life of Jesus. The good news of God comes to us through the death of Jesus. And the good news of God comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus. We receive the promises of God when we choose to follow Jesus. Amen.